Thanks, Luke. Praise team. If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20 is where we'll be this morning. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. In last week's sermon, uh, I closed with an illustration for Christian worship. And, and I, had, I had said that what we're doing in this room on Sunday morning is mimicking as much as possible the worship that takes place around the throne of God. And we see this uh, evident in Scripture in various places, the worship that takes place around the throne of God. And we also see a pattern in Scripture of how God desires His people to worship Him. And so I, I wanted to challenge us to think about our experience together on Sunday morning as if we're in a dark, cold, foreign country surrounded by people that don't speak our language. That, that worship would be like that time once a week where we gather together where we share a common language, where we eat familiar food and we listen to familiar songs that remind us where we come from, that remind us that the world that we're living in is not our home. Nope. And it's in this deep sense of worship that we will be salt and light to the world around us. Now our passage this morning is shifting ever so slightly. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus showed us what the character of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven looks like. We call that the Beatitudes. He said he is poor in spirit. He mourns over his own sin. He's meek. He seeks to live righteously. He is merciful, pure in heart, a peacemaker, and he is often persecuted. This is his overall character profile. But then in verses 13 to 16, Jesus said that, that when his citizens come together as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, these, as they come together, are salt and light to a dying and dark world. But now there's a, a slight shift. And for the rest of the chapter, Jesus is going to give example after example on how we should then live. And he's going to get really specific. So this sermon this week, in the text that we're looking at this morning, is really going to give us an introduction to the rest of this chapter. Where Jesus is going to go point by point through the various laws that you've heard once before. And he's going to talk about laws that should govern the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And that's the question that we're really answering this morning. How then should we live? What should we then do because of it? Now as a warning, this passage that we're going to be reading this morning has a lot of different interpretations. It's very complex on a lot of different levels. I'm not going to dive totally into all of the complexities of this, this passage. My goal is to help us get the understanding of the meaning, the point of what Jesus is trying to communicate, and 
leave here not feeling like we have bees in our heads. All right? That's the, that's the goal. But be ready to think with me deeply on this passage. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I want us to keep in mind how Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has really developed this book so far. And I think it's helpful to see the overall picture of, and the overall point that he's driving home in his gospel. And you may recall that the first three chapters of this gospel serve to introduce us to the central character in this story, Jesus Christ. The gospel opened with the claim that He is Christ because He fits the bill as a candidate for the Messiah since He's of the line of David and He's rightful heir to David's throne. Before chapter 1 comes to a close, the angel tells Joseph that this Jesus is the Messiah, that He's coming to save His people from their sins. So there's no question. There shouldn't be any question in our mind who this gospel is claiming Jesus to be, the Messiah. But it's really chapters 2 and 3 that I want to remind you about, I want to bring to your attention. You remember that, that throughout these chapters we have several statements that Matthew makes all along the way that say something to the effect of, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled, and then he goes on to say what prophecy or what statement was made in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. And what I said back then was that some of those statements that Matthew says Jesus fulfills do appear to be outright future-telling prophecy, like we would typically think about it. As an example, Matthew quotes Isaiah and his prophetic statement Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And without getting into too many specifics and details about that particular passage, it's widely recognized across all of us in this room. If we were to just read the Isaiah quote, every single one of us would say, that's about Jesus. He's prophesying that Jesus would one day come into the world. The Messiah is going to come, and this is what he's going to be like. And so Matthew cites that Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. But then there are other Old Testament passages that Matthew says that Jesus fulfills that don't really seem like future-telling prophecy. As an example, he says out of Egypt, or he's talking about when the baby, when baby Jesus is coming up out of Egypt with his family, and Matthew cites Hosea 11.1, and he says, out of Egypt I called my son. But when you go back and read that statement in Hosea, it doesn't seem like Hosea has in mind at all the Messiah 
coming in the future, that that's not even what he's talking about. He's talking about Israel coming up out of Egypt, and he's referring back to Israel coming up out of Egypt. It doesn't seem like Hosea is making any sort of future-telling prophecy about the Messiah there. And I said back then that, the, that Matthew is explaining to us that Jesus is actually retracing the steps of Israel. He's coming up out of Egypt. In the gospel, he then goes through the waters of baptism as Israel passes through the waters of the Red Sea. Jesus then goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and is tempted by the devil even as Israel went out through the wilderness for 40 years and was tempted as well. Jesus responds to the devil with warnings that Moses gave to the children of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy about not falling prey to Satan's schemes anymore. Communicating to the audience as Jesus does this, as we're reading this gospel, that although Jesus is retracing Israel's steps, he's doing it without sin which is going to be pivotal when Jesus dies on the cross, of course. So Jesus is established in this gospel as a new and better Israel, and He's coming and He's retracing the steps of Israel yet without sin, but that's not all. Jesus is also established as the new and better Moses. In chapter 2, not only do we have the baby Jesus enduring a very similar story as Moses, saved from a ruler who sought to kill Jewish males, babies. Unless we think that that's just a coincidence, then Matthew and the angel tells, tells Joseph to go back into the land. And he says this in 2.20, he says, Those who sought the child's life are dead. Which is a near exact quote to what God tells Moses when he finds him in the land of Midian to go back into Egypt. Those that sought your life are dead. The reason that all of this is significant is because now Jesus, from his own mountaintop position, similar to Moses on Sinai, begins teaching his followers how they will enter into the rule and reign of God. And he has told them that the saving reign of God is at hand. It is here now. And in order to come under his rule, you must repent. And then he's laid out for them what the character profile looks like for a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And in verses 21 and following, which we'll get to next time, he's going to demonstrate the law of the kingdom of heaven. He's going to tell them what the law of the kingdom of heaven really looks like. You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. Over and over again. But in our text this morning... He's explaining how the Old Testament relate to Him and the law of the kingdom of heaven. And the first thing that He says is the Old Testament Scriptures point to Christ, point to Him as their ultimate expectation. The Old Testament Scriptures point to Christ as their ultimate expectation. 
Look at verse 17 and 18. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away, pass from the law until all is accomplished. Well, what are we supposed to make of that? As a, as a Christian, I expect Jesus to say, I came to fulfill the law. I, ex- I expect him to say that like he does there at the end of verse 17. Meaning that it's no longer necessary for me, right? I mean, isn't that what that, that means? That, that I don't live in accordance with the law anymore? Isn't that what Paul means in Romans 3.21 when he says, The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law? So I expect Jesus to go there. I expect him to say, hey, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. I've come to do all that. What is somewhat unexpected is all the other stuff around it. The stuff that says he hasn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. And he says, none of it will pass away. Not an iota, not a dot, until all is accomplished. The phrase, until heaven and earth pass away, that's not referring to his crucifixion and his resurrection. That's referring to his second coming. None of it will pass away until heaven and earth passes away. I think if you were to go around the room, a room full of Christians, and you were to ask the question, do you still live by the law of Moses? Is it necessary to live by the law of Moses in order to be a Christian? This is wrestled with in Acts 15, is it not? Is it necessary to live according to the law of Moses in order to be a Christian? And I think everyone would rightly say no. I'm a Christian. I don't live in accordance with the law of Moses really anymore. But then how do we understand what Jesus is saying here? That the law isn't going to pass away until I come back. The law and the prophets, won't. none of this will happen until I come back. And how do we understand what he seems to say in verse 19 when he says, if you relax them and teach others to do likewise, oh, not good for you. Are we free from the law? And if so, how and why? What obligation does the Christian have to the Old Testament law? Now, there are several common explanations for this, and I think some of them are better than others. One you might hear, and I'm not going to dive into all of them, but one that I think is pretty common that you might hear a lot is that the law is comprised of three phases. There's the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. And the explanation would go something like this, that the ceremonial and the civil laws have been fulfilled. The ceremonial law would be the law that governs clean and unclean, So, for instance, the eating of shellfish would make you unclean. That would be a ceremonial law. It governs the way we interact with the Lord in worship, the ceremony that takes place there. The civil law has also perished. Jesus has taken care of of that as well, since there doesn't need to be a a governmental system uh, put in place like the Jews had that that has since perished. And so the ceremonial laws and the civil laws have been fulfilled, and the moral law is the only thing that's left. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. That was a lot of people's explanation. I think even Calvin had explained it that way. So that's why my wife can go to a seafood restaurant. I don't eat seafood. I hate seafood. 
but my wife can go to a seafood restaurant and she can open up one of those um, ocean crickets. What are they? Ocean, smother them in butter. I think a lobster, I think is what people call it. It's a, it's a bug. It was covered under millions of gallons of water, people. You don't have to go get it. He, God did that on purpose. He didn't want us to eat them. Um, <laughs> so she can go and take the lobsters and crack them open and she can cover it in butter. And when shellfish is a no-no in the law of Moses... It would have made one ceremonially unclean. It would have been part of the ceremonial, ceremonial law. It would have made you unclean. That part of the law has disappeared. But the moral law still is here. We can't murder people. That would still be a sin against God. Now the problem with this way of thinking about what Jesus is saying here is there, there's a lot of problems with it. But one of them, it certainly calls into question what Jesus means when he says not one iota, not a dot will pass away. An iota would be the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. A dot here is referring to what we would look at if you, if you think of the Times New Roman uh, font, the little serif on the edge of the T that curls around like this. That would be, that would be a dot. So what, what Jesus is saying is not the least little tick mark in the, the text itself. Nothing will pass away. A lot of people would argue, well, Jesus' death, his resurrection, takes care of a lot of things in the law, but Jesus does away with the food laws in Mark 7 before he even dies. So it certainly calls into question some of these things, and I, I think there's help, those are helpful categories, moral, ceremonial and, and, uh, categories of law. I think those are helpful, and we can use those. I just don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. I think what Jesus is saying is that the law and the prophets meaning the whole Old Testament Scriptures, everything, the whole Old Testament, is brimming with expectations, with hopes and dreams of what the Messiah will be and what kind of kingdom He will bring. And you cannot read the Old Testament rightly without feeling like this is building towards something. Like it's headed in a certain direction. Like it's going a certain way. And this is pointing toward a time when the Messiah will come and redeem God's people and set up His kingdom. And whether, it, when you read in Leviticus, it's the Jewish sacrificial system that we're reading about in our reading plans, or when you read the United, about the United Kingdom under David, or maybe watching the rest of the Jewish monarchy just really struggle throughout the entire Old Testament, or you watch the Jewish people struggle to really live under the Mosaic law and obey God, you can't help but think that this solution that is provided in the Old Testament is temporary. Nobody can live under it. We can't do it. Ezekiel and Jeremiah are there to remind us that God is going to give His people a heart of flesh so that they can follow Him. They're basically saying that God has to do something here. He has to provide in some way in order for us to actually obey this. So Jesus is saying, don't think that I came to get rid of the Old Testament. I have come to fulfill all its expectations. When you in the same way that when you think about something that you're really excited about happening, and then it, the day finally comes, and when you come back at the end, 
The question is always, did it fulfill your expectations? And Jesus is saying, when it comes to the Old Testament, when the law and the prophets, I have come to fulfill them. Every last page of the Old Testament leaves you with that sense of longing. And what the law and the prophets are seeking to establish is the kingdom of God on earth. Think about that for just a second. What the law and the prophets are seeking to establish is the kingdom of God on earth. And Jesus is saying, I have come to meet those expectations. In other words, this that I'm doing is not plan B. He's not looking at the Old Testament and going, well, that didn't work. Throw it out. He's saying that those 39 books were all meant to give you a hope, to point you in my direction, to make you realize, I can't do this. Nobody can. Jesus is coming to say, I can. Think about what we've been talking about so far in the book of Matthew. What's Matthew been arguing? He's arguing that the kingdom of God has been established on earth through Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. The kingdom of God has been established on earth through Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying here, I have come to fulfill that sense of expectation. I have come to bring God's kingdom to earth. And not one iota, not the smallest hope or dream of the Old Testament is going to pass away until every last one of its expectations find their fulfillment in me. In other words, the Old Testament has been desiring this since the day of its inception. And in Jesus, it will not be found wanting. That's why Matthew goes to such lengths to say Jesus came out of Egypt and that fulfilled the expectation of the Old Testament. Jesus was literally God's son and he came out of Egypt. He was born in Bethlehem and that fulfilled the expectations of the Old Testament. He was born of a virgin, and that fulfilled the expectations of the Old Testament. He is even there to comfort Rachel, who's weeping over the destruction of her kids, and that fulfilled the expectations of the Old Testament. Matthew says all of these were fulfilled by Jesus, even though some of them don't appear to be future-telling prophecies. There is an expectation and Jesus meets those expectations. He fulfills those expectations. So Matthew is showing us that everything in the Old Testament scripture, everything that those scriptures are longing for is wrapped up in Jesus. It's more than simply him being of the line of David. It's more than him simply fulfilling a future telling prophecy. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures. But he's also clear on how long it's going to take for all of this to fully come to fruition. He says, until heaven and earth pass away. So he's going to fully establish God's kingdom on earth. It has started now, but it's going to take some time. In his death, burial, and resurrection, it was inaugurated. But it won't be fully consummated until his return is complete. 
Because the Old Testament Scriptures point to Christ as their expectation. The second thing he says is the righteous demands of the kingdom of heaven are much greater than the laws of Moses. The righteous demands of the kingdom of heaven are much greater than the law of Moses. Look with me at verses 19 and 20. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them uh, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All that I just explained feels can feel anyway, very academic. Like maybe it's unimportant. It actually means something very significant. The expectation of the Old Testament is that one day, God is going to establish His kingdom fully here on earth. And when that day comes, His people will rejoice as they live under His reign. That's the hope of the Old Testament For God's people to live under God's rule in God's place. For God's people to live under God's rule in God's place. It's the expectation of the Old Testament. Well, what have we said Jesus is bringing? He's bringing the kingdom. But but then look what he tells us in verse 19. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments... What is he talking about there? The commandments in the Old Testament? Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments in the Old Testament? Is that the commandments? The commandments of the law? Is that what he's talking about? Some say yes. I say no. I think what he's actually talking about is the commandments he's about to give them in the Sermon on the Mount. As Luke pointed out earlier, build your house on my words. This rock that I'm giving to you. He says, I'm going to fulfill every expectation of the law. So what is their response? Jesus is going to fulfill all the expectations of the law. Therefore, because he's going to do that, we can wash our hands of the law. We can kick our feet up on our ottoman, put our hands behind our head, and we can just relax. Is that what Jesus says? Quite the opposite, actually. He's about to tell them that the kingdom of heaven is beginning right now. And part of its fulfillment is that citizens of the kingdom of heaven are going to begin living by a new and stricter code of holiness. The law of the kingdom of heaven. It's not altogether different than the Old Testament law because it all has the same source. God wrote it all. In fact, what we're going to see in the coming passages is that the Old Testament law points us in the right direction of the law of the kingdom of heaven. We're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. But the problem with the law is not that it produces self-righteousness. It's that it doesn't go far enough. So Jesus is going to sharpen the point of the law and drill it right down into the human heart. And as the one who is establishing God's kingdom on earth, he is uniquely suited to do just that. 
So all the roads of the Old Testament law converge on one single pathway, and Jesus is standing right in the middle of it. And then he turns and says, follow me, it's this way. Let's keep going. This is the way in which we should now live. Look at what Jesus is demanding here. I want you to look at what Jesus is demanding here. Really think about it. It's it's supposed to be heavy on the audience that hears it. And I want it to be heavy on us as well. Look at what he says. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So when you hear the word Pharisee, most of us are conditioned by now to think of a bad guy. Immediately. Pharisee. Up. Bad guy. Hypocrite. Pit of vipers. And that's what we think of in the future when Jesus calls them a pit of vipers or calls them a hypocrite in Matthew 23. That's, that's typically what image we have in our mind. But that's not what we're talking about right here. And that's not what we're looking at right here in this text. Let's pretend like we've never read this gospel before. Let's pretend like we don't know the end of the story. That we don't know that the Pharisees are totally bad hombres. Let's pretend like we don't know that. What we should think of is a conservative resurgence in the Judeo life, in the Jewish life. That's what the Pharisees represent, is a return to conservatism, to coming back to the law. Obedient to the law so much that they they made up other laws so they were sure not to break God's law. They They were very concerned with the way this law was understood and interpreted in the midst of a progressively more liberal society. The Pharisees are trying to return back. So there's not a chance that the people in the audience that are listening to Jesus talk about this are saying, oh good, the Pharisees, because they're awful people. I've got them whipped. Give me a challenge, Jesus, please. Give me something a little bit harder. Everyone in that audience is thinking, well, great. If the Pharisees don't make it into the kingdom of heaven, I am totally excluded. If the list of Beatitudes didn't knock them out, then that statement right there is definitely going to knock them out. Think about what Jesus is doing here. He says, I'm fulfilling the expectations of the Old Testament. I'm bringing in the law of the kingdom of heaven. The law that the Old Testament was longing for and pointing to. But what does this law look like? What does that law look like? What does the law of the kingdom of heaven really look like? If we were to put it into order right now. Well, last week we took a field trip to Siberia. All right. This week we're going to take a field trip to heaven itself. All of us are going to go there right now in our minds, and we're going to be flies on the wall inside heaven. The first command that Jesus is going to address, as you're thinking about what life is looking like in the world around you, now that we're in heaven, we're flies on the wall in heaven. I'll tell you that Jesus' first command that we're going to address next time He says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. Well, here we are in the kingdom of heaven. Look around you. Do you see any murder? Do you see murder going on in the kingdom of heaven? I certainly hope not. I don't think there's ever been one case of murder in the kingdom of heaven. 
They don't have a police department in the kingdom of heaven. But then Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Look around at the people that you see in heaven. As you're thinking about it, look around at the people that you see in heaven. You, you don't see someone in a back alley somewhere stabbing a guy in the back for his wallet. You certainly don't see that. But do you even see any evidence that anyone's angry with one another? No. Do you see gossip? No. Do you see backbiting? No. Do you see two-facedness? Do you see, oh, hey, how you doing? I've missed you. I can't stand that guy. You see that? When you watch the interactions that they have with one another, is that what you see? You see somebody going, oh, so great to see you, and then walking away and rolling their eyes? They're not even angry with one another. Everyone there lives together in perfect peace and harmony. Now, brothers and sisters, come back to earth. Look at what Jesus is placing upon the people listening. He's taking the law of the kingdom of heaven, which is very familiar, very similar to the, the law of the Old Testament. Except that it forces you to penetrate the outward experience and look straight at your own heart and ask, yeah, but what are your motivations? What does your heart look like? You might not be killing your brother but are you angry with him? What does your heart look like? You see, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. What you can see in the Pharisees is adherence to the law. What you don't see is a wicked Jesus is bringing the law of the kingdom of heaven down with him. It's burgeoning. It's pushing out the law of man. And he's giving it to his people. And the expectation is obedience to the uttermost. Down to the very core of the human heart is holiness. And he's saying, this is the standard that you're held up to. This is it. This is the standard. Holiness down to your very core. I think so often we feel as though we have the kind of freedom in Christ. We have freedom from the Old Testament law, and that kind of freedom gives us a license to relax the talk of holiness and right living. Relax. Jesus has it covered. What is the point of him being the fulfillment of everything if all this holiness really matters? Case in point, bring up sin around the dinner table sometime. <laughs> Watch the air in the room just get sucked out. We don't want to talk about it. See, Jesus has every opportunity 
to relax the talk of holiness. To say, look, guys, I've got it covered. I'm in the middle of all this. I'm fulfilling its expectations. What are you worried about? Just relax. But he doesn't. He has every opportunity to, but he doesn't. In fact, he says the opposite. He says, therefore, don't you dare relax on holiness as defined by the kingdom of heaven. Unless you live by the holiness of the kingdom of heaven now, and unless you see that as your standard for living, you won't get within a hundred miles of the gate of the kingdom of heaven. That's my translation. Jesus is taking the law of Moses and saying the law of the kingdom of heaven is so much more intense. It's the law that the law of Moses had been pointing to all along. But the righteous demands of the kingdom of heaven are much greater than the law of Moses. And it's incumbent on us as kingdom citizens to live by it. That's the point. That if we're gathering together as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, what is the law that governs us? How then should we live? It looks like it does in the kingdom of heaven. Many of us could look around at the people around us and say, I've never killed anybody. I've never murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. We're saying the same things that the Pharisees are saying. We're saying the same thing that the Jewish people are saying. And Jesus says, yes, but it's not enough. It is about the human heart. So if we're going to be governed, or if we're going to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, what law should govern us? Holiness to the core of the human What does this mean for us? When Adam fell, the human race fell. God created a race in innocence, knowing only good. And when Adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what happened to him? What happened to us as a result? No longer innocence. We know evil. And our, the human experience, the human character is such that when we know evil, we, like a moth to a flame, desire it. We long for it and we flee towards it. We pursue evil. It's a foregone conclusion. Ask any parent. Friends, the law that Jesus places on us is too much for us. As the Jews have proven throughout the Old Testament, we couldn't even keep the law of Moses. The prophets are clear on this that we need a new heart. In the fallen flesh, knowing evil, how could I ever do this? See, Jesus has come tightening the screws on the law, turning up the volume on this Old Testament law, helping us to hear the real intention, cutting straight to the human heart. He's coming to do exactly that, but He's not just come to do that. He's also come to, in, to in not only instruct us on how to live, but to actually give us help in living this way. 
to actually give us a new affection. So now that my affections have turned towards evil by by the work of Christ and belief in Him and the advent of the Holy Spirit taking up residence in my heart, I have a new affection that's warring with the affection towards evil. The Holy Spirit is exposing all of the dark corners of my heart. But see, if we get get the right opportunity, if given the opportunity, we'll twist that back into something like, well, we have to put on a righteous face for everyone else, even though inside we're decaying and we're struggling with sin and we're giving into it. That's absolutely not it. That's not what we're living by. Identifying sin, pointing it out in the people around us, helping our brothers and sisters come to repentance is the name of the game. That is what we're supposed to be about as citizens of the kingdom that are governed by the law of the kingdom of heaven. That is what we're supposed to be about. It's the reason that we're here together. How then should we live? Jesus is calling us to live a life of complete purity, but we need help. We're going to require help from the Holy Spirit. It's going to require turning towards Christ confessing Him as Lord, owning up to the sins in our heart, relying on the Holy Spirit to do that. We can't just hope to live by this without actual regeneration, without actually being Christians, without actually being citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It can't work that way. It doesn't work that way. We require help from the Holy Spirit to have legs to actually walk down the path. But we're also going to need help from brothers and sisters Last week, we thought about worship and what we're doing here. And this week is really all about accountability. What law governs us together as a body of Christ? It's the law of the kingdom of heaven. It's the reason that we're here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how difficult it would be to live according to your righteous standard without your help. Without you conquering sin and death for us. Without you serving as our substitution or sending your son to serve as our substitution. Without you doing that, how could we possibly So, Lord, we thank you. We need help. As citizens of your kingdom, we pray for guidance. Pray for a commitment to holiness. Pray that holiness wouldn't just be a a word used in a in a a bygone era. But bringing it into our presence today, that you would put a, a, a tremendous burden on our heart to really scrutinize our inward motivations. That we may be pure in heart. 
that we may pursue righteousness with everything that we have. Lord, convict us where we sin. Expose the dark corners of our heart. Give us a holy unrest. Pray, Lord, that we would not be people that are friends with sin. But that you would give us eyes to see that it's our mortal enemy. That we wouldn't be comfortable wallowing in it. But it would be an irritant to us. That we would have the boldness to turn to the people next to us. Help them in their struggle too. And that all of us would give each of us the grace that's required to make it. Pray that for this body. That you would bring us together around this campfire of worship. That we may hold each other accountable to live lives of holiness. In Jesus' name, amen.